Today you will hear the story of a high school shooting that never happened. It is a story without carnage or accounts of splattered blood against hallway lockers. It is a story minus SWAT teams, ambulances and frantic parents. It's a story that in some ways is much more surprising than that. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 it's trouble in America. Today's conversation includes graphic content that is not suitable for all listeners, including children. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Anyone who has listened to Watching America for any length of time will suspect that I love music, for I most definitely do. But occasionally, I will be conflicted about a tune, such is the case with the music that you hear now. It's called Pumped Up Kids, and it's by a band called Foster the People. It was a hit a few years back. I think the melody is wonderfully pleasing, but the lyrics, well, less so. You see, they're about a disillusioned youth with a homicidal desire to shoot his fellow schoolmates. are out and out threatening. You'd better run, better run, outrun my gun. You better run, better run, faster than my bullet. At that point, at least for me, the song loses its charm, and I wish it was simply an instrumental. You see, disturbed youths with an intent to brandish weapons so as to kill their fellow students is an extremely serious matter. And subsequently, this edition of Watching America is a serious show. It is my pleasure to welcome to Watching America Aaron Stark. He confessed quite literally to the world via media in various forms that he was almost a school shooter. Back in 1996, he attended North high school in Denver, Colorado. And in 1996, he had the intent of either going to his high school or perhaps, as he has shared, a mall food court and killing people, killing people because of the pain in his own life. He has said elsewhere that it wasn't about the people that he thought about as far as mayhem. It was more about, and I quote, it was about the largest amount of damage in the shortest amount of time with the least amount of security. That was the attraction. He fostered these ideas, held on to these ideas for a considerable length of time, and then there was an unexpected intervention. Please welcome, again, to Watching America, Aaron Stark. Aaron, thank you so very much for spending time with us. Before the obvious, uh, and that is to discuss your nefarious intent of killing mass groups of people, let's start about your childhood. What is your earliest memory? Oh, my earliest memory. Um, that's actually a really bad one. Um, my very earliest memory is me laying on my bloody mom's body as my dad, my birth father, is standing over me with a tire iron where I look up at him saying, you just killed my mom. She wasn't dead, but I thought she was at the time. And I was, I think, two or three years old. Was she bleeding from her head or over her chest? She, he he had been beating her for a while. I I don't remember. I, she was laying there completely unconscious, covered in blood. Covered so in blood. I don't. Yeah. And and what did you your father say? 
when you... I, I don't rem- I, I don't remember that. I, I that's the one. It's the one vivid image that I have of my early early years. It was is that it's the oh, only oh. up until I was about four or five years old. And then about four or five, what are, you, what are your recollections of, of that period of time in your life? My earliest memories then was we were running from place to place, getting away from him. Um, my birth dad was really extremely violent. He was an ex-Vietnam vet. And I guess from the stories I heard when he was over there, um, he got really messed up in the head. And when he came back, he got really involved in drugs and just became extremely paranoid and violent. And he was ex- extremely violent and abusive to my, tell my mom, like a movie of the week level kind of violence. We're talking like rapes and beatings and, and stockings and hiding under the table when you would come home and, and jumping out and beating you, stuff like that. Aaron, what was your source of solace, comfort during this time? Was there any for you? Um, I, for me, it was escapism. I loved comic books. Comic books and stories like cartoons and superheroes and um, Dungeons and Dragons and, and that kind of thing. I, I was a big and in, big into escapism. So I would sit and read while, I, I, while there would be there would literally be um, giant fights going on. People getting beaten and punched and drunken things being thrown around. And I'd be sitting off in the corner reading X-Men and Avengers. And that would be my my escape. Regarding Dungeons and Dragons, did you ever aspire to be a dungeon master of some sort? Actually, yes. In, in one of the high schools, actually a couple of the high schools I went to, I started uh, get, um, Dungeons and Dragons clubs, uh, trying to get as many geeks as I could. Very rarely ever getting more than one or two other kids that liked D&D at any school that I was at, but I would always try. Did you commit to a, a particular character that you'd created and, and held on to that character, or did you morph into different characters in the game? I, I would kind of morph into different characters, um, but it would be, I would stick between a couple different archetypes. I would be either a dwarven barbarian or I, I like to play mute characters for some that's, reason. That's where, interesting. Why do you suppose that was? I, I, I really don't know. That's, I had never thought of that before. But now that, I, now that I think about it, I would always play a mute. There was a, there's a race called the Drow, which are the dark elves. And they're the elves that are cast out to under the underground. And the race is basically racially evil where everybody in the race is supposed to be evil where there's a couple um outcasts that are like the good heroes and those are the ones you play as player characters well i suppose um, a freudian analyst might say or at least an armchair analyst might say you chose mutes because you didn't think you had a voice is that true that very well could be yeah because i definitely did not feel like i had a voice i felt really invisible i would always talk about uh, and i i up until I was in my early 20s. I would tell everybody that I felt I was forgettable. Like I felt like I, when I walked out of the room, people would just forget that I was ever in that room to begin with. And so when I, cause I bounced around so much. So in a couple of times I would repeat places. So like I went to this one elementary school, Iber uh, here in Denver. And I went there, I think three different times. So I went there for kindergarten. I think I went there for second grade for a little bit. And then I came back for, I think it was fourth grade. And each time I was the new kid again, but like I had known the school, so I kind of wasn't. And it was this really weird situation. I would feel like I was just invisible. Like no one remembered that I was there before. No, no, like I had, I knew I was there, but nobody knew that I was there. Like I hadn't made any kind of effect. And it just, I felt really invisible. Did and you that have, just kind of grew with me. Did you have any feeling of significance in your early age at all? I mean, uh, even in the midst of the game, was that a kind of a relief? Because you did you didn't have to be Aaron Stark; you could be this character. Was that was that comforting to you? Yeah, I felt I I, I I actually started to get a little bit of social significance in a really weird way. There's I would I describe it now as disaster groupies. Um, when I was when I would bounce around, I would get I wouldn't call them friends. But I, I call them disaster groupies because they're more like people that just wanted to watch the car crash. And it could have been, looking back on it, that I just didn't perceive them as friends because I had a hard time perceiving anybody that was giving me kindness and love as actually being authentic. Uh, I, I just kind of assumed that you were lying to me because everybody else was lying to me and everybody told me I was terrible. So if you like me, then you must be not telling me the truth. During the time I thought of it, they were just around me just because they just wanted to watch the disaster. They just wanted to watch the car crash. They just wanted to watch me flame out. And so in that, I would have a little bit of social standing because I always thought I was really intelligent. 
like I thought that I was really smart. And every time I would bounce to a new school, they would always give me a placement test. And on the placement tests and any assessment tests, I would like score way off the charts. So the, the classes I was placed in were always like the advanced classes. So I, but a good example was math. It was always kind of a personal joke to me that growing up in math class, I would always get bumped up to the next advanced class, even though I didn't actually pass a math class except, uh, since eighth grade algebra. In high school, if you miss more than four days unexcused back then, they would just fail you for the year. And I missed that within the first two weeks. And so I failed right away. And so I just never did any of my homework, but I always did. I always did the test. It was kind of an ego thing for me, but I was always there for the test and I always took the test, but I never did any of the assignments. And so for math class, I failed algebra. The next year I got put in trigonometry. I failed trigonometry. And then the next year I got put in algebra two. I failed algebra two. And then the next year when I finally dropped out as a junior, I got, I was in calculus and I hadn't passed for for three four years by that point and but my test scores always pushed me up and so i always kind of thought that i was smart and so in that group i would like write poetry and i would um always be telling stories and that kind of got me gatherings and following um not always in the most positive of ways uh so <clears throat> a good example i would write poetry in north high shortly Shortly before the time that I would talk about in my talk, actually, about a year and a half before, uh, as a freshman, I was kind of living in the park across the street from North High, Viking Park. And I was never really going to class. I was always in the park. And so during lunch and stuff, it was, back then that you had open campus, so kids could walk off campus and go to the restaurants around the neighborhood and stuff. And so during lunch, the kids would come out to the park and hang out. And I was all in a poetry writing mood. And one of the things I did one year was I made like theme poems where I, all the girls that I knew, I went up to them and I wrote a poem about them that was like describing them as an animal, but then like comparing them to that and how, what, how, what I saw in them and all that kind of stuff. And I gave them to all these girls and the girls really liked them. It was, they, they seemed to be really, really pleased with it. But then shortly after I'm sitting in the circle with the girls and I get punched in the back of the head by a guy with holding a metal bar in his hand who is upset that I've made his girl smile. And so now he wants to fight me. And so to defuse it, I'm, he, he's standing there with like four or five of his guys. And I just stand up and I'm like, extend my, extend my hand. I'm like, dude, I don't want to fight you. Oh, I don't, I don't, what am I going to do? You're going to beat me up. What, what's going on here? I don't want to fight you. And so he didn't really have anything he can do there. But later on, he ended up fighting me living in that dark area you do acquire a weird element of, I don't know, status. It, it really like reverse status, like being the dark, angry one makes you separate in a, in a way. And looking at the social structure that we have now, I think that is a really big facet of what's going on today. How do you mean that? The, well, the, there was a, uh, there was a truism back when I was bouncing from school to school, but when I would go to a school, I would get bullied. I would have four or five kids that would bully me, but then I'd have three or four kids on the other side that might protect me and be like, Hey, he's cool. This is at any given school. Okay. And this was in the eighties and nineties. So pre social media. But now when you get bullied, not only will you have a whole subculture that's going to cheer you on and how to be a better bully, but then they'll give you all that positive reinforcement that you were craving but by telling you, you you're the best bully now, and this is how you be the best troll. And there's no counterbalance to that. And so the same way that I got status from being the most negative monster and the, the, the most evil of the room would be the same way that these trolls are trying to get status among their peer group, just in a much more amplified way. So it's the old They're, negative attention is better than no attention. Exactly. But they're getting that negative attention, that, the positive reinforcement through the most negative means possible. And we're seeing it now on, on an exponentially large level. And in all these various subcultures, be it an incel subculture where they decide that women hate them, so other guys decide that women hate them want to hate them too, and turns into the self-perpetuating hate circle. And you see it in white nationalism, where people, you just, you, you otherize, you, you xenophobe, 
you, you, you get, you adopt the xenophobia of the other is the villain and separate from me. So I need to fight it. And it turns into this separation and that makes your in group become so insular and so negative that you can become the leader of this negative group and thereby be positive. So is it fair to say that your strategy is to avenge a darkness with a superior darkness? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that that would be that would be a good way to do it. Like for it, that, like that is a good a good way to explain my whole drive when I was looking to when I finally got to that point that I wanted to kill people. What I mean by it wasn't about the people that I was attacking because they weren't the people that I wanted to hurt. The goal, the people I wanted to hurt were my own parents, but not by actually hurting them. I wanted to make them deal with creating a monster. Okay, now this is significant, uh, not to say that other things you have said are not, but this is certainly tantamount to uh, really explaining a lot of the motivation perhaps that have been, well, guiding other people to do nefarious mm-hmm. bad things. Your, your motivation in part in 1996 when at North High School in Denver to kill people either in your school or at a food court was not to only inflict death and mayhem on those around you, happenstance who happened to be there the wrong place at the wrong time, but ultimately to get back at your parents by bringing shame and devastation upon their lives. Is that correct? That, that's exactly right. And it was to make them deal with having created a monster. To make them, they told me my whole life I was broken and I was worthless and that I would never amount to anything. And if you say that I'm the broken one and you say that I'm bad, then okay, I'll be bad. You know, people said there was good people and bad people in the world. I just thought, okay, I'm the bad person. So if I'm the bad person, then I'm going to be the best bad person I can be. Well, let me bring the audience up to to speed a little bit because there's so much in your your life. So allow me to allude to a few things and please don't hesitate to correct me, Aaron, where I'm incorrect. But you have said elsewhere, I believe, that you attended about 30 or 40 different schools. Your parents were Mm -hmm. drug addicts. Um, you smelled bad from neglect. It wasn't your fault, but your clothes were sour. You didn't have a place to wash them, get clean. Parents didn't supervise to make sure that you were cleanly. I, I would only, I would only say that with that, that it was partially my fault because I was making myself more unappealing to fulfill my own self hatred. Okay, so you wanted to be repugnant socially. Yes. Okay, yes. got it. Between the ages of fourteen and fifteen, you started cutting yourself. And by the time you were 15 to 16, you were homeless. In fact, you were living with a friend, uh, in a sense, because you were actually sleeping in his shed. Rain would come down. Uh, you were pretty much exposed to the elements. But that was your hangout, that shed, when you were homeless. Is that correct? That's very correct. Well, that was my safe base. I would, I would only say I slept there probably three or four nights every couple weeks. Um, but that was my safe base. When everything else finally got too overwhelming, and I couldn't survive living on the streets, bouncing from pavement. Because where I was mostly sleeping was actually either um, on the gravel outside my then girlfriend's apartment, um, because her parents wouldn't let me sleep in the house, um, and so they were in a basement apartment. So her window was level with the driveway, and so mm-hmm. I just slept on the driveway, like right next to her window. Or I would sleep in the field behind Casa Benita, which was like literally right next door. So I would bounce between these couple different areas. But then when it was snowing or when it was just too too oppressively dark and not in the sense of visible light, it was just too much, I would go to Mike's house. And Mike's house was the safe spot. That he was he was the best. So to explain me and Mike's relationship a little bit, while I was because I did, I bounced around a lot, bounced from school to school a whole lot. First in my early years running from my father and from extreme violence from him, I described that as living in a Stephen King movie. It was just the worst kind of violence, sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse of every kind of level. Well, at the age of 16, uh, when you're periodically sleeping in the shed of your friends, Mm -hmm. uh, you Mm -hmm. decide to be active and you contact and phone social services. As a result, you and your mother are brought in, and your mother is very convincing in trying to persuade the social service workers that, in fact, that you are fabricating much of the things that are being said. So you wind up going home with her, and at a pinnacle moment, she turns to you and says, regarding cutting, which you used to do, 
If you're going to cut yourself, do it right, and I'll buy you new razor blades. Yeah. She, how did, she, how did she, you respond to that? I shattered. I, I sat there broken for a bit, just kind of stunned that she actually said that. That's It's literally, we, we had the meeting with the social workers, in, in the meeting with the social worker. I First, I walk in the room not expecting her to be there, and she's sitting in the room. And then I sit down, and I'm like, okay, social worker says, what's your problem? And my response is I pull out a blood-covered razor blade. Like, we're talking the old square-style razor blade that you would put into the replacement style for a box cutter. And so I throw that on the table, and I said, that's my problem. And I show her my arm, and it has a bunch of fresh cuts on it, okay? And I'm like, I, I feel like I want to hurt myself. I feel like I'm at the very bottom. And my mom starts talking about how, oh, that's not the truth. We He goes through this all the time, and he's just doing this for attention. And everywhere we go, he's trying to get people involved. And I'm always trying to have to talk to people about it, which was true, because people had tried to intervene, and she always knew what to say to him to get people out and would stop talking to him. So I'm sitting there like, I, I, I came to you for help. I need help. And the lady's like, well, you know, I, I, I think that maybe we should, we'll have to schedule a meeting sometime else, and we'll just have to, we'll, we'll, we'll meet with them again in a couple of weeks and we'll see how this goes. And we'll, we'll talk to you guys again soon. And she sends me home with my mom and literally we get in the car. We're driving less than a block away. And she turns to me with this like angry snarl. And she says, if you wanted to do it next time, you should do a better job and I'll buy you the razor blade. I'm like, I, 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 I can't believe. Okay. And my, I, I kind of, I could find kind of feel my brain just kind of shatter. And I decided, well, all right, you want to, you want to say that to me, I'm going to do all that kind of playing with adopting the evil part. I just ran right into it. Like I fully became the evil that everybody told me I was going to be like, if they wanted to to tell me that I'm that bad, I'm going to burn their entire world to the ground. Like I'm just going to destroy everything. Now you say, and I quote you, you say, there is a strange, comforting calmness in darkness. What exactly did you mean by that? When, when darkness becomes your normal for so long, when you live in that kind of despair for years, it, it becomes your positive. It becomes so... It, it becomes so natural that anything that is actually positive appears unnatural and alien. Well, for somebody like yourself who enjoys math, is it fair to say that two negatives become a positive in this light? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and uh, and the negatives can stack up in the strangest of ways. Like, they're... A, a good example is with cutting. Okay, The cutting started as a a method of emotional control because I, I felt like my whole world, I would describe my world like it was a movie, but like I wasn't a participant. I was just sitting in the audience watching my life pass me by as a movie. Who was the director? And I had some terrible horror movie director. So someone that first it was Stephen King. And then it was more like a, the director of Scarface, so Scorsese. So that's because my life with my stepdad, after, when, when my mom left my father with all the, emotion, the extreme physical violence, she got with my stepdad and it moved to living in Scarface. Lots of crack cocaine, lots of stealing things. He went to prison for four years for strong arm robbery. How, was, how old were was, you when your stepfather came into your life? Um, that was about six years old. Wow. Five or okay. six years old. All right. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you, and, what, and what, what were your Christmases like? I'm, I'm only trying to imagine. What was Christmas Day? What was Christmas Eve? You, 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 did you have a television, I presume? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, actually. So you see, actually one, one so of the, take, take me back to this. You have Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Mm-hmm. You have Frosty the Snowman. You have mm-hmm. all these cheery tunes, you know, uh, Frosty the Snowman, and you're seeing all these advertisements for toys and what have you, the last end push, it's Christmas Eve. You go to bed Christmas Eve. What's your expectation for Christmas morning? Well, here's one of the things. One of the ways that my parents were criminals is they used to steal entire delivery trucks and toys. So they used to go when, when like the toy, Toys R Us truck going to this factory, going to the store, they'd steal the entire truck. And then they go sell it at the flea market. So I actually would end up with every toy I wanted. They were just entirely stolen and entirely disposable because everything I had could vanish at the drop of a hat. Like, 
there was there was more times than I can count that I would be laying in bed and get, have someone burst in the door at three o'clock in the morning, throw a duffel bag at me saying, grab as much stuff as you can. We need to get out of here. And I'd have like 15 minutes to grab as many of my belongings as I possibly could. And then we'd get in the car and drive to another state. And so everything I owned would vanish. And I, I had like, I had every He-Man toy. I had every GI Joe toy. I had every Thundercats toy. I had most of the comic books that I would want because when we were, when we were going around to stop me from whining about wanting something, we would go to a grocery store and my mom would let me buy a comic book. So I had the physical thing because that was part of their crime, but none of it mattered to about any of it. The only thing that, that I treasure was my comic books. My comic books I carry with me everywhere. I used to carry crates of those with me from state to state, but all the rest of my belongings would just vanish. How did you handle equating the comic book, which the nature of which is essentially the hero, although mm-hmm. you have, you know, the Dark Knight, you have Batman and what have you, which is kind of a quizzical anti-hero at times. How, who did you identify with in these comic books when your parents were the bad guys and most comic heroes want to avenge bad, guy, bad guys? How did, how did you square that? For me, it was X-Men because the X-Men got their powers not because of any kind of decision. They were just born that way. And a lot of the times, the X-Men's powers were not positive. So, like, the character I used to identify the most with, there was two of them, was Nightcrawler. Um, Nightcrawler is, his name is Kurt Wagner. He is a German-born mutant. And he looks outwardly like a demon. Like, he has a tail. He has three hand, three toes on each hand and foot. He teleports away in a puff of black smoke with flame. And, and like, he looks like a demon, covered in blue fur, with a, carries a sword. And so if you look at him, he looks like a straight up demon from hell, but he's also a fan of Meryl, uh, Errol Flynn movies and a fan of swashbuckling and loves comedies and loves like, like, uh, Shakespeare plays and stuff like that. And is one of the most lighthearted, gregarious people on the entire team. And I really, really identified with him a lot that on the outside, it looked like a demon, but on the inside, I felt like I was just a poet, a writer. And the other one that I really liked was a character named uh, Angel, who was born with wings. He was basically kind of stereotypical, like just a guy with wings. But then in the story, his wings got cut off and got replaced with these evil metal wings that, that were destroying everything and killing everybody. And he turned into the Angel of Death. And those two characters were the biggest, like, I I identify with those two a lot. This is Watching America from WHRV Public Media. Today's conversation includes graphic content that is not suitable for all listeners, including children. We'll be right back. I'm Ken Rudin, host of The Political Junkie, here to bring you the week's must-hear political stories the best way I know how, with a bit of history and, allegedly, humor. Each week we'll sit down with journalists, academics, and politicians from across the country to shed light on the most interesting stories in the political world. Tune in each week to Ken Rudin's Political Junkie from PRX. Friday afternoon at 1 on WHRV. It's easy to suffer from information overload these days. Social media posts that just keep scrolling, bite-sized headlines sent to your phone and even your watch. I'm Ira Flato. Every week on Science Friday, we take a step back for a longer look into the big ideas in science. Take a deeper dive with us. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Friday at 2 on WHRV, public media serving Eastern Virginia. This is Watching America from WHRV Public Media. Today's conversation includes graphic content that is not suitable for all listeners, including children. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Aaron Stark. As he has divulged and confessed, his intention, at least in 1996, was to kill people 
to kill people in mass because of his deep pain and the severity of isolation that he felt. As you've just been talking about various superheroes and comic books that you identified with, I'm just wondering if you could indulge me for a moment. If you Mm -hmm. were to create a comic book character for yourself, what would you call him and what would be his special power? Hmm. I've thought about the special power before just because I'm a comic book nerd, Um, but I haven't really thought of the name. Um, Make one up on on the spur. Let's see. I would say, hmm. well, the power, let's start with the power of the name. The name might come to me as I describe it. So the power that I thought about would be that I would have kind of a dual power. One of them would be using darkness as like a solidified darkness. So you could like raise up a dark shield and have a dark sword and like it's actually solid darkness, but then have the flip side and have it be solid light. And you can use solid light. And when you hit with the light, instead of destroying, it would heal you. And you would be able to, like, remove poisons and stuff with it. And those would be my powers. Because now I use spend my life trying to help people out of that darkness and trying to get people to see that they matter. And so that's kind of how I would dream to have my own superpowers. Um, so I would possibly say the Redeemer. That might be a good one. The Redeemer. All right. Um, as you disclose to the world, uh, and by means largely of TED Talks, uh, that you wanted to be at one time a killer, a mass killer, um, you immediately accrued a lot of attention. And that, on some level, I would imagine, Aaron, must have felt very gratifying because as you shared with us earlier in this interview, you said that you felt like essentially a nobody, a non-entity, invisible. You are certainly very visible now. Um, You are writing a book. There's been talk of a movie. There's a documentary currently being made about you. Um, Mm -hmm. How have you been able to deal with what some people would call this heady experience of sudden, this grand exposure? Um, It's been an experience. Um, First off, I got therapy. That's I have to help me deal and, and absorb that. But the... The exposure really isn't at all the thing that is the hard part to deal with. It's the personal responses. I, my story, I started my story as a Facebook post. So right after the day after the Parkland massacre, I just wrote a simple Facebook post about how I was almost a school shooter. And that we, that if I would have had love, I wouldn't, or if I, if I had a rifle, I would have been a killer, but if I would have had love, I would have never wanted a rifle. And so I wrote that Facebook post by the next day that went like Facebook viral, got a couple hundred thousand likes and shares and was just supposed to be just for my family. Okay. So my wife was like, Hey, you should send this to the local news. So I sent it to my local news reporter that we watch on channel nine all the time. And he, they came and did a story on me. And that with a week after Parkland that blew up and got 17 million views on Facebook. So wow. I immediately started getting this massive response from literally all over the planet. I got like, I'm up to now fifty thousand personal messages. How did you go people. from how did you go from obscurity to within a matter of weeks handling uh, this this massive attention? I just dove right in. So here's the cool thing about the messages. It's not just, hey, that's a cool story. It's hey, that's cool, and here's everything that ever happened to me. Here's all the pain that ever I, I ever went through. So I started getting thousands upon thousands of diaries of people explaining their deepest pain to me, things they've never talked about, okay? And I've responded personally to 98% of every message that came to me. If, it, because if you gave me more than just, hi, I like you, I'm going to give you part of me back. And it's, it was so cathartic. Within the first week, I got messages from, from the Vegas survivors community from the, after the Vegas massacre, from the um, Newtown survivors after Sandy Hook. And they were telling me, please keep going. So I'm going to keep going. So that was like right away. I'm like, okay, the rest of this is just I'm all in. If, if this, if these two groups, I can help them even a little bit, see, have a little bit of hope, then I'm I'm going to do all I can to to do that. Did you get any and, disturbing messages from people who actually said, Aaron, I'm still planning on doing something like that? Have you had? Do you have to contend yes, with the dark yes. side? How have you handled yes. that? I well, here's how I did it. So out of that responses I got right away, I made a Facebook group. Okay. It's called You Are Not Alone. And in that group, it's now to almost 1,700 members. One of the first things I did was filled it with professionals. So there are 
doctors, there's psychotherapists, there are um, trauma professionals uh, from all different varieties in a whole lot of different areas all over the country, all over the world, really. And so in this group so far, I I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but I'm really proud of this. The group itself has helped stop seven suicides, three attacks, and helped two people get out of white nationalism. Wow. Through through people reaching out and being able to talk about it, being able to find support, being able to get support where they are, and being able to actually move forward with that support in a real way. So it's been the most amazing and cathartic experience of my entire life. Let me ask you, I've I've been to Sandy Hook uh, in Connecticut, Mm -hmm. not far from where I used to live. And uh, mm-hmm. I've also been to Columbine, and I've been to the Memorial Columbine, uh, which is incredibly moving. And um, yeah, I've I've been there too. Very charged and potent, with uh, with with a sense of uh, awesome sadness. Let mm-hmm. me just ask you: your intent on killing people was back in 1996. That preceded Columbine by three years. <laughs> Um, I, 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 I'm reticent and reluctant to say you were ahead of the game because it sounds trivial, but it's not a game. But you were having these very dark thoughts and intentions before it was actually perpetrated. In Denver, you were three years ahead. So when it actually happened in 1999 and these two young men went through Columbine High School killing people, mm-hmm. how did you look at yourself self-reflexively at that time? And what was your predominant thought watching the news? I was literally watching it. I was working at the time as it was going on. And so I was, I, I was on my lunch break watching all the, the tragedy, and I was getting phone calls from friends all around both Denver and in Oregon, the other state that I mostly moved between, making sure that wasn't me. Mm. They were calling me to say, that's not you, right? You're not the one shooting that school, right? Please tell me you're not killing that school. And so that, that was the response I was getting, was just reassuring everybody that, no, I've moved past that. I'm working right now. That's not me, I promise. And so it was really kind of spooky. Um, I had friends who actually were in the school. They were not victims, thankfully, but they were in the school. It was, it was something that, looking back on it, I'm kind of ashamed at my response to it. In what um, way? What, at, what are you ashamed of? Well, at, my, at the time, I was still in a really dark place. And I was... So did you approve or were you indifferent? to what these two murderers had done? Indifferent at the time. Okay, so there was, um, a, there was still a hollowness of your soul and a, a, a lack of empathy for others? Yeah, I hadn't fully pulled out. So the, the TED Talk, I don't know if you've ever heard the second part of this. The TED Talk is kind of the condensed version of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Believe me, I've so done a lot of research on you. Right after um, the Columbine shooting, my 19th birthday happened. Yeah, mm-hmm. my, May 24th was my birthday. Columbine was April, I think, April 19th or 14th. Mm-hmm. Um, and so shortly after that, my 19th birthday happened. I was in a very suicidal state during my, right, leading up to my 19th birthday. I um, had planned on killing myself that night. I was homeless. I was working, but I was still homeless. And I was, it was just a really bad time. Um, and I, I didn't, have really anything left in my world because my job that I thought I was having, I was just about to lose because I was not, I was too busy tripping acid and sleeping in a field. And it was, I, I was really at the bottom. And so I was sleeping in the field outside Casa Bonita and the, um, as my 19th birthday is coming up, I'm, I'm planning on killing myself by taking a whole lot of drugs. So I have, I stole a bunch of uh, pills and cocaine from my mom, and I had a bunch of LSD myself that I had got. I was planning on taking them all that night and killing myself. And during the day, I was acting like nothing was going on. Like I was doing my best to act like nothing was happening at all. So because the first time I was in that dark spot, my kid intervened, and we had that big thing, and I didn't want anybody to save me this time. So I, I, I just so wanted just to end it. For the purpose of those who are just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. My guest is Aaron Stark. Uh, it was his intention back in 1996 when he was at North High in Denver, Colorado, to create a massacre, to kill as many people as he could, mainly to hurt his parents who were um, abusive, indifferent, drug addicts, uh, criminals of many different types of disorder. 
and um, he was utterly miserable. And so he wanted to take a lot of people out to cause pain and mainly directed towards his parents. What prevented this from happening, just to catch everyone up, is he had a good friend. Uh, he used to sleep periodically in this friend's shed. And at 16, this best friend turned to him and treated him decently and said, hey, would you like to get something to eat? Do you want to see a movie? And he has said, Aaron, if I'm correct, correct me if I'm wrong, that that was the turning point that prevented you from taking your weapon, which you had acquired, and killing people. Am I correct? I had not acquired the weapon. Okay. I had, I had set the acquisition in motion. So we go three years forward now, and you're 19 again, and you're severely depressed, mm-hmm. and you take as much acid and everything as you possibly can to annihilate mm-hmm. yourself in the midst of the night, even though you've had a job and you've been working at it. Pick us up from there. Well, the job the job was really just kind of piecemeal. Like, it wasn't a good job. I was working, like, maybe one or two days a week. And so I was sleeping in the field, and I'm like, okay, I, I, I don't want anybody to help me this time, but I want to act like I'm normal. So during the daytime, I go and I hang out with Mike. And I'm, like, acting like nothing is going on, trying to act all normal. And Mike's like, okay, cool. Mike has a, is a social guy himself. Mike has a, a social circle. And in his social circle is this girl named Amber. And we would routinely go over and hang out at Amber's house just for a bit, you know, go watch a movie, listen to some music, whatever. And he, she was Mike's friend, not my friend. But she was, a, she was fine with me. She was friendly, but she was definitely his friend. And so he's like, we're going to go kick it at Amber's for a while. I'm like, okay, cool. Thinking nothing of it and thinking that when it's done, we're going to go back and I'm going to go back to my field and finish myself off. So what happened? And so we go to the house. And instead of that, I opened up the door and it was actually a surprise birthday party for me. And I had about 14 people there all to say they love me. And they made me a blueberry peach pie. And I had a nice loving night with them and spent the weekend with people that loved me instead of going back to the field. And I dumped all my drugs down the, bat- the toilet in her house. And that was the last time I ever tried to kill myself. Um, what happened to your parents? I need to catch up a little bit in the time that we have left. What happened to your parents? What's your relationship with them now? Did they live? Did they... Um, come to um, misfortune as an end? Well, my stepdad died in a literal pool of his own filth in the middle of a drunken fight after collapsing in the bathroom. Um, so he died about three years ago. And then my mom is still alive but hasn't had any contact with me since the day I got approved for the TED Talk. I got a, the, I literally got off the phone with the organizer for the TED Talk saying, yes, I can do my TED Talk speech. And then I got a phone call from her saying that I was a worthless piece of crap and deserved to be dead and I should never talk to her again. Let, me, let me ask you, and, and moving forward, because I, I want to get all of your story in. You are now a father of four. You have a wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're in therapy. Uh, at the moment, congratulations, you've got a new job. You're working at Starbucks at a drive-thru. I am. And I am. Which, which you love, evidently. What do you like about working at a drive-thru? What's, what's, what's the pleasing part of that that you enjoy so much? Uh, I just like the, the people. I work with really cool people. I, You're I social. like their customers. I'm very social. Yes. I'm, a, I'm a people person. Okay. After spending my life thinking I was invisible, now I get to talk to people all the time and have fun. Let me ask you a question that some people may say, um, and you know, because uh-huh. people have different vantage points and, and everything. Uh, a cynic could say, well, here's a guy who just happened to announce that he thought about killing people in a high school, and now he's being rewarded by a documentary being made about him and he's being rewarded by a book being written and there'll be a book deal and and the whole world has come to his living room, uh, television, radio, broadcasts, podcasts and everything. And gosh, maybe I should go on YouTube and say that I nearly was a, uh, a fascist who was going to take over Europe, and but I didn't and I'll get attention too. What do you say to the cynics like that? Well, first off, if anybody has any money for any of that, they should show me because I haven't gotten paid for any of that stuff. So okay. the, 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 that all, explains all Starbucks. Media, okay, yeah, exactly. All the media and stuff, all of that's free. I spend my entire time for free doing everything I possibly can to help as many people as I can out of darkness, and I'm going to keep on doing that the rest of my life, whether people like me to or not. Because if me talking about it can help even one person see that they're worth it when they don't think that they are, then I'm going to talk until more people can see that. So uh, the, the, you asked me earlier if I got any negative messages. And one of the coolest things about this whole experience is out of the many, many thousands of personal messages I got, out of the tens of thousands of them, guess how many trolls I've actually received? 
Just how many know. negative messages I've actually received. Uh, I'm going to be positive. I'm going to say 500 <laughs> out of all the uh, thousands um, you've had. Uh, uh, you can be way more positive than that and say 10. Really? Wow. That, how encouraging. That's great. Five, five of those are blood-related to me. Wow, that says a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> Did mom so, put them up to it? Uh, well, I had to block my mom, my brother, my niece, and my grandma on Facebook and all my social medias because they keep on attacking me. Oh, um, dear. Yeah. Not because, not because I'm saying anything not true, yes. but because I'm talking about family deal, dealings in public. Uh, because yes. how, dare I, how dare I make the family look bad? Yeah. And my response is always, well, I'll stop the instant you tell me even one thing that I'm saying that's not the truth. Right. And if you're and if you're upset about me talking about the truth of what happened to me 25 years ago, but you're not paying attention to who I am today, then I'm not the one that has the problem. Yeah. So it's it's almost like the old expression, honor among thieves, and you've dishonored them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, right now, right now, I'm pretty invulnerable with that because it, you can you can't really insult me because I've come out with my story and trying to help people. And at the same time, I've also lost 200 pounds. I know. Oh, that's why I was going to wrap up because I've been watching these videos, and you're getting thinner and uh, heading towards felt. I mean, the the, the first Thank you. talk you gave, you're a pretty rotund fella, okay? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I no, keep, yeah, for sure. I go month by month by month by month looking at these videos, and you know, yeah. I don't know if you've been eating a lot at Subway or what's going on, man. But you've lost a well, ton of weight. How did you do it? Yeah. Well, I lost 200 pounds altogether. I was almost five, almost 500 pounds at my highest. And the very first media you see me, the very first videos, that was 468 pounds. Wow. Okay. And so from there, I, I first, I cut my diet. I, I cut out all my soda. Well, I had a health problem. I had a heart attack at 38 years old. Okay? Oh dear. And, yeah. and I had a, a, my, I'm going to give my daughter all my credit for this one because I had one of those cheerful moments where I'm sitting there. I had a really bad leg infection, almost lost my right leg. It was terrible. Mm. I didn't now I'm, I'm recovered, but I almost did. And I'm sitting there having a, a cheerful discussion. It was the closest I've gotten to suicidal since that time back in the day. Okay, because I thought that I'm 500 pounds, I'm stuck in my chair forever. Nothing's going to be able to fix me. And so I'm having one of those moments where I'm feeling despondent. And I'm feeling all sorry for myself. And my daughter stands up. My 18 year old daughter stands up in front of me and says, "You're not going to give up. You're going to fight and be the dad that I know you are. And you're going to live through this. And you're going to make it. And you're going to make yourself better. And you're going to do it." And I did. I gave up soda pop cold. I never haven't had a drop of soda pop in three years. And I was the kind of person that had a 12 pack with dinner or 12 pack during the day and a two liter with dinner. And so I haven't had a drop of soda in three years and I changed my diet completely. And then about a year in after losing about a hundred pounds, the, the normal way I had weight loss surgery and I had gastric sleeve surgery. So they removed most of my stomach and I've lost another hundred pounds since then. So now as I'm walking, I, I am about 270. Well, you look fantastic. I mean, you really do. You look like a different man. I think it's I very encouraging. Like it. I, I am smaller now than I was when I was 19 years old. Wow. Wow. So this is a new lease on life, isn't it? Everything that's happened to you in the last uh, 18 months. Mm -hmm. it, I am. I am. It, the me of, of two and a half years ago, the me of, of May of 2016, I am a fundamentally different person, 100%, both from every bit of my personality, every bit of my soul, every bit of my physicality, 100% absolutely fundamentally different. And I would never change back in a million years. Well, I have to say your superhero self-description of uh, the amazing power that you would attribute to yourself to turn darkness into light, you're exhibiting uh, both in your person and the effect that you're having on others. I'd like to conclude, if I may, Aaron, and thank you so much for uh, generously giving your time to us. I'd like to conclude with a quote that you delivered at the end of one of your speeches. You said, mm -hmm. love the ones you feel deserve it the least because they are the ones who need it the most. Can you elaborate on that? We, we otherize people. We, we look at the people on the other side as they're the villain. And it, it doesn't matter what the divide is. It could be Democrat and Republican looking at the other side saying, well, you're evil, you're depraved, or you're immoral. could be religious divides where you, the Christian looks down on the atheist or vice versa, the atheist looks down on the believer. It could be anything from looking down on a fat person because they're a different size, looking down on a skinny person because they're too skinny. It could be any of that. We look at the person like they're the other. And if we can get past that, if we can get past the superficial label that we 
see the other person as before we know them, and we see them as the actual person, then maybe we could start to break down this divide. That's one of the reasons why in this entire talk we've had, and in every talk I've had, I avoid talking about gun control or mental health, because both of those two terms are so loaded that they divert the attention entirely. Gun control, you talk about it, you get lost in the details. You get lost in, well, is that, is that the uh, uh, bump stock? Is that a, uh, an extended barrel? Whatever. You get lost in the details so much, you lose sight of the actual argument. And mental health is the exact problem on the opposite spectrum. So you get, you, it's such an amorphous gray blob that no one understands what mental health really is. and There's no detail to it. And so you can't really wrap your head around it. So those two things, when you say them, just dilute the argument entirely. So instead, I try to break through that barrier and say, I felt like I was worthless because I was told I was worthless for most most of my life. And if you are a licensed gun owner, you want to own a gun, own whatever you want. There has to be a way to keep them out of the hands of the kids in the situation that I was in 25 years ago. And if you look at me like you think that you should hate me, either because I'm an atheist or because I used to want to kill people or because I had severe mental problems when I was a younger person. Look at the person I am now. Look at the man I've become now and see if you still want to hate me because maybe you might change your opinion. And maybe if we can do that on a wider level, maybe we can all start coming back together as a country. You've touched on theology, which is always extremely intriguing to me. And uh, I I presume you've just indicated that you're an atheist, which is also intriguing Mm to me. Um, I am a Christian, and my worldview is, I think, in true Christianity. One should look at themselves as not being superior to anybody, and not just like a a mental discipline, like, no one's superior Mm -hmm. to me, but in actual fact, recognizing within our own humanity our flawedness, our capacity for evil, our capacity for confusion, our capacity for misdirecting our pain— all of which you've alluded to. So I just want to say, Christian or otherwise, atheist or otherwise, human to human, thank you very much, Aaron, for taking the darkness, flipping that shield around, showing the light side, and encouraging others and bringing hope. And you've done that today on Watching America, and we are all very grateful. And if you can accept this in the best terms, humor me. God bless you. Thank you very much. I supremely appreciate that. Thank you for giving me the time. This has been one of the most absolutely fun interviews I've ever done. I really appreciate it. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme tune is provided by Razorlight. Our producer is Paul Bebo. Senior producer Gina Gamboni. Executive producer Chuck Dowd, Chief of Content Heather Mazzoni, and CEO Bert Schmidt. I'm the series creator and host, yours truly, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care. Blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.